But there are a lot of jobs that pay in that range. But I think the unique thing about Uber and Lyft is the flexibility. So if you can take advantage of that flexibility, if you're a teacher who can only work in the summer, for example, right, like that's the time where you can work those jobs. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. I can't imagine he's up to much, but let's check in with him anyway. Cody, what's going on? Yeah, you are completely right, Justin. Not up to too much. I spent this past weekend like I do most of my weekends. I had a little Zoom party, hung out with some friends virtually. I was actually kind of productive, too, so I'll give myself a little bit of a pat in the back there. But how about you, man? Yeah, you know, a lot of the same. The NFL draft was happening, so I did some similar type stuff where I did some video chats with the buddies and we watched the draft. You know, it's getting kind of weird to where now there's not a lot of stuff to do, so I find myself doing work for like my day job on the weekend, but also trying to do some things on the on the personal side where brushing up the website, updating it some, maybe thinking about adding in some coaching, you know, just going in there messing around. So uh, try to use the downtime as productive as possible. But enough about us. Let's pause for a second from a word from our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. And so on today's episode, we have Harry Campbell from The Rideshare Guy. He talks about everything from regular old ride sharing to Uber and Lyft to all the delivery services out there. And we even get into some other side hustles that are kind of related to ride sharing. But I'm not going to take away all of Harry's thunder. Take it away, Harry. I actually remember I have a funny story. I used to sit across from a young girl in an English class and every day my mom would make me these amazing lunches. And uh, one day she was like, hey, I didn't have any food today. Could I maybe pay you for your bag of chips? And I was like, oh, the chips are the best part of the lunch, you know, with a sandwich and a Snapple. And it was key. But the next day I asked my mom to pack me an extra bag of chips And I started selling, you know, little 75 cent bags of chips. And even though it wasn't, I would say, meaningful to me in terms of money, like I don't know what I actually ended up doing with that 75 cents every day. It just sort of made me one of the things that I really realized then and that I've you know, sort of used in my business ever since going forward, whether I knew it or not, was that when like people want to give you money, you need to find a way to accept it. You need to find a way to say yes. You need to sort of be able to see, you know, create something of value that someone really wants that they're willing to pay, you know, multiples of what it's worth. And then 
you have that kind of like free inbound and you can now kind of like use that and leverage that in your business. And so that was sort of a pretty simple example. And her mom, I think, called me the the 75 cent Harry or something like that when I went over to her house. But that's a little bit about how it all got started. So it sounds like your mom was hooking you up there by giving you the product. And we always like to ask, you know, growing up in the household, what were the money lessons like? Did you get any of those from your parents? Did you get that entrepreneurial spirit from them? Like how was it being raised? Yeah, you know, I think that to be honest, I didn't get a ton of direct lessons when I was young, but as I've grown up and, you know, sort of now I'm, I guess I'm 33 years old and I'm self-employed and running my own business and sort of a, I watch my son a lot. I'm not a stay-at-home dad, but I do watch my son a lot because my wife works a lot. And thinking back, I'm like, oh, wait, that was kind of my dad. My dad, my dad was kind of semi-retired working from himself. You know, like my mom was working a lot and he watched the kids, even though my mom was great and she did, you know, a ton of work or, you know, like home stuff too, but sort of like almost, you know, indirectly, I realized that, Hey, some of those lessons kind of got passed on to me versus, you know, I don't have as many of the stories like, Oh, my parents were always saving and, you know, cheap on this and cheap on that. And that instilled this in me was more like indirect lessons. I think. What did the next couple of years look like? So you already got that taste of making money on your own without having an employer. Did you go straight out of college and get a job? Did you go and try to wing it as an entrepreneur? Could you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so I actually took a pretty traditional career path, I guess, for someone in my situation. You know, I went to school at UC San Diego here in California, and I studied aerospace engineering. And so I took a job, uh, got a job as a structural engineer, kind of doing the exact opposite of what I do now, really. But, uh, you know, sitting in a cubicle and punching on spreadsheets. But I think one thing that I've always found is, you know, I guess I sort of was doing side hustles before they were called side hustles or before they were cool. And I think for me, I really always just liked, I've always gravitated towards things that I was kind of going to do anyways, or that were a really high return on my time. Those are like the two types of jobs that I've always had in college. I was on the volleyball team and I did the team's laundry, which sounds terrible, but all it was was everyone had a laundry bag and they would throw it into this mesh laundry bag and I would grab everyone's bag at the end of practice and throw them into this commercial washer and then another team would throw it in the dryer for me and I got paid two hours every day and it took me about four minutes, right? <laughs> so it wasn't a ton of money, you know, it was maybe $14 an hour, but it was 28 bucks a day for about, you know, literally four to six minutes of work a day. And so I think if you calculate that on kind of an hourly rate, then you're looking at a pretty good uh, rate of return. So you find yourself in this traditional job, but you've obviously got this entrepreneurial bug. And I could see how that would start kind of eating away at you, just trying to pull you away. But normally there's something that happens in that traditional job where you're like, okay, that's it. That's enough. Did you ever have a moment like that? That's funny. You guys must have done a lot of these interviews because I did have a moment just like that. And I think actually the exact moment was when I was working for Boeing, which most people know in Seal Beach, California. And I was sitting across from a guy. I won't throw him under the bus on this podcast, <laughs> just in case he's a listener. You never know. And he was telling me how he actually used to work in the same building like 40 years ago when the company was, I can't remember what the company was called, but they used to build rockets in that building. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this guy's career has really come full circle and he doesn't seem super happy. <laughs> you know, he's you know, not in the same desk, same cubicle, but he's in the same building that he worked in 40 years ago in a completely different company, a completely different project. And, you know, I wouldn't say that I studied him every Monday, but, you know, he wasn't that excited. He wasn't that passionate about what he was doing. And I had already 
kind of started thinking about career moves or, you know, alternative things that I could do or side hustles or whatever it was. But that honestly was one of the turning points for me because it really made me realize like, wow, I don't want to be that guy. I'm like seeing into the future. Like I could literally, you know, if I continue down the same path, I could be him, you know, in 40 years, like talking to some young guy, like, Hey, you know, I used to sit in your seat, you know, 40 years ago doing that job for Boeing and, you know, whatever the space company of the future is. Before you quit your job, if I did my homework correctly, you already started some of these hot hustles, which were specifically driving for Uber and Lyft. What type of an income were you making and why did you feel comfortable to go and up and leave that job? Even though you just told us it was mostly because of that guy, the money part is often one of the most scary things about it. Yeah, money was scary. And I would even say the healthcare was scary, too, because I was married at the time. And so I think uh, I was providing the healthcare for both my wife and I. My wife was in school. So, I mean, I think we could have gotten healthcare, but we had to pay a lot for it. <laughs> so I don't know if that really counts. And uh, that was actually one of the big things that held me back. And so I actually started driving for Uber and Lyft in 2014. I was still working my day job at Boeing. And I'd taken it actually as a passenger a couple of times, but it wasn't cool yet. You know, like not everyone knew about it yet. People weren't always taking it everywhere and talking about it. So it's sort of like good timing where it was really just starting to go mainstream. And to me, again, it was something that just seemed interesting. Like I was like, yeah, there's a, okay, I can make money, but I was like, I can't imagine this pays too much, right? I mean, you're driving people around. Like that doesn't seem like the most lucrative job in the world, but I just decided to try it and I decided to do it. And I ended up actually, you know, especially early on when rates were higher and demand was great, like I was making more per hour driving for Uber and Lyft than I was at my day job. That wasn't the reason why I was doing it. It was actually a lot of fun, right? Like if you're doing anything five to 10 hours a week. And at the time I was driving in Newport Beach, I was married, but it was like Friday, Saturday nights, a lot of like young groups of like really good looking females, really good looking males, like everyone's good looking in Newport Beach, California, you know, going out to party and, you know, go to the beach. And, you know, I just remember, uh, you know, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of fun rides and fun trips. And I was thinking to myself like, wow, I'm making like 30 to 40 bucks an hour right here. And I knew it wouldn't last forever because I was literally just driving people around, but it was kind of a basic function of supply and demand. They didn't have a lot of drivers early on and they were spending a lot of money to get them. So I was kind of right there at the forefront of all that. It's funny because I actually did some lift driving on the side when I was in the Air Force in 2014. And it was kind of the same thing. I would go around Friday nights, Saturday nights, taking people to the bars. And I was surprised like how many people asked me to like come into a house party or come into a bar with them. Like people actually kind of like hit on you and ask you to go into these places with them, which seems kind of sketchy. Like if you're on the other side of it, like, should I ask my driver out? But it's it's pretty impressive, like what people will do. But while it's a lot of fun, I mean, obviously the money, again, has to play a big part in it. And I know you said you didn't kind of start doing it for the money, but was there ever a point where you said, okay, this is enough stable income to where I feel comfortable? Like, I know you've hit the kind of psychological points where you're looking at the guy saying, oh, that's not where I want to be. You're having fun with this. But when did you do those calculations? Well, so around the time that I started driving for Uber and Lyft, I actually started my blog, The Rideshare Guy. And... I think that the thought of becoming a full-time Uber and Lyft driver never really crossed my mind, but I was definitely open to, you know, sort of being a full-time blogger like that. Actually, you know, I think when you hear that, you know, someone's a full-time blogger, it seems like pretty fun and glamorous job. Turns out not so much, but it is some a little fun. <laughs> you can definitely make a, a few bucks to pay the bills if you know what you're doing and, you know, get a little lucky. And so for me, 
I think that I was in the right place at the right time, you know, driving for Uber and Lyft and kind of had my analytical backgrounds. A lot of the content I was putting out early on was, hey, you know, I made $30, $40 driving for Uber and Lyft. And like, here's a huge spreadsheet that has all my numbers and, you know, my cost per mile and my cost per trip and where I could be more efficient and things like that. Just sort of things that were natural to my roots and the things that I cared about and the things that I enjoyed and also the things that I was good at. So I started blogging about my experience and it was about a year into my blog where I wasn't making a ton of money off of the blog yet. I mean, I was probably making, you know, like honestly a few hundred dollars a month, maybe more, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred a month, but it wasn't anywhere near my full time day job income, which I think at the time was like eighty or ninety thousand dollars a year, you know, for like an engineer with five years experience in California. So pretty standard, but I could sort of see the writing on the wall. You know, I, I guess, again, like going back to my engineering background, I said, hey, I'm spending around 20 to 30 hours a week on my blog at this time because I have a 40 hour a week day job. You know, I spent a couple hours at my day job working on the blog, but we won't we won't count that for now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I can double or triple the hours that I'm spending on my blog, ideally, I should be able to at least double or triple the income and, you know, hopefully much further. So that was really kind of like those were the types of calculations I was making. And frankly, like I had a lot of savings. You know, I've never been a big spender. I started making good money out of from graduating college day one. And so it was funny because a lot of people were think where you know like wow you're leaving your job as an aerospace engineer to become a blogger and literally on my last day at boeing my boss you know i wasn't even the greatest employee i just you know kind of did my work kept my head down and never went above and beyond but never was getting you know chastised or anything and he said hey if you ever want to come back just let me know and i said okay great <laughs> so it was sort of like like i don't know i didn't see it as a huge risk quitting my job to go do the blog full time because the blog was trending in the right direction and also i still you know i had savings and even maybe a safety net if i want to go back to the job this is a perfect transition into something i want to ask about because of course we're talking about the money and whether or not you felt comfortable was frugality something that came into play here? Because obviously having a $2,000 baseline expenses is a lot easier to jump into being the rideshare guy, doing this Uber and Lyft than having a baseline of $7,000 a month of expenses in California. That can be really scary if you know the blog doesn't take off or if this rideshare thing doesn't quite work out. So were you being intentionally frugal at that point so you could make that transition? I think that's a good point. I have always, you know, I don't know that I would call myself frugal, but I definitely am more on the frugal spectrum of things, especially early on when, frankly, I wasn't making as much money. And even my salary at Boeing, you know, it was a decent salary or good salary for a lot of places, but California is expensive. I mean, I remember, you know, shopping around and like when we moved to Newport Beach and I was still working at Boeing, I remember actually we paid $1,700 a month for a two bedroom, two bath apartment in Newport Beach, right near the beach, which is, I don't know, you know, I know everyone lives in different places, but that's a, that was like a great deal <laughs> seven or eight years ago. That was like a hell of a deal seven or eight years ago. And to me, I was like, whoa, that's a lot, you know? So even then, right, like the expenses were relatively minimal, but I think that it was like, hey, we're still living in Newport Beach, right? It's still like a great place to live. And so I think that's like, all right, that, that was my my mindset. It's like, okay, I'd I'm, I'm totally down to live in this kind of nice expensive area, but let's get like a cheaper place in that nice expensive area, right? Because, you know, the beach is free no matter how much you pay for rent. So you've got the website going, it's taking off and your expenses aren't that high, but I'm sure, you know, you probably have a little bit of that lifestyle inflation. It kind of starts to go up as the income starts to go up. But is there anywhere along the way where, you start to actually look at financial independence or does that never become part of your story? 
I think that it kind of depends on what you're going for in respect to financial independence. I'm sure if you looked at my net worth for my age, I'd probably be up very near the top. But if you asked me, and actually I met with my CPA the other day, and this was really the question he asked me is like, what number would it take for you to kind of, you know, consider yourself financially independent? And the number that it came to mind was a lot more than I have right now. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? And so I think that, you know, if I wanted to live a life that was, you know, like sort of living in that $1,700 a month Newport Beach apartment, I would be financially independent right now. But I think one of the things that I've always gravitated to, and especially as my business has been more successful, as I've made more money, is that I think some lifestyle inflation is okay. I think, in fact, some lifestyle inflation is a lot of fun. You know, like when I travel internationally or, you know, like travel domestically, I mean, most of the time I pay for my business class flights with points, but <laughs> I will say, you know, like, I like staying in nicer hotels. I like staying in, you know, like traveling in nicer accommodations, right? And I'm not talking like I need a private jet everywhere I go and I'm taking multiple trips around the world. I mean, I've got one kid and another kid on the way. So my travel is already somewhat limited, but I like having enough income where I can do basically anything I want within reason, right? Like if I want to go stay at like a five-star hotel and spend a couple thousand bucks for the weekend, right? It's like pretty damn expensive, but you know, it's really overall, like an overall year of a budget. It's a pretty small item. Now, if you're doing that every weekend, obviously that adds up, but it's like how many of those trips can you take a year with two kids, right? Obviously the rideshare guy started as Uber and Lyft, but now it's expanded to I mean, so many different things. There's rideshare, there's food delivery, there's the scooter services. I know you have a bunch of other stuff on your site. We try to be as actionable as possible on this podcast. Could you give us just the basic lay of the land? You don't have to get too deep into every single company, but like, what are the big money makers out there? What are the ones people should try to avoid? If you can talk about that, I know obviously you work with some of these companies, but we'd love if you could just give us a basic overview for those who are maybe interested in diving into this gig economy, ride sharing stuff, but have not yet. Yeah, well, I think one thing that I'm known very well for is telling it like it is. So even though I have working relationships with all of the companies, and I'm probably the only person, you know, who maybe is driven for Uber, but also interviewed their CEO, I think that I, I definitely am I'm not shy to tell it like it is. I mean, I think there's really what my site is all about is I want people who want to do these jobs or are going to do these jobs. So I'm never I'm never a fan of people coming to me and saying, you know, like, well, should I do this or not? It's like for me, I'm more about presenting the facts, the experience. And then if they want to do it, great. I'm not going to tell people they shouldn't do this. You know, they, they don't pay enough. Right. Because it's like everyone's in such a different situation. And I'm just again, like I'm more of a positive guy. It's like, hey, if you want to go drive for instance, to cart. Great. Here's the best way to do it. Here are the tips and here's how you're going to do it. I'm less concerned with like, you know, some of the other negatives, even though, of course, like every job has positives and negatives. So if we wanted to quickly, you know, kind of cover obviously my site, the rideshare guy, there's definitely a big bias towards Uber and Lyft. And frankly, you know, they probably hire the most number of drivers. There's two to three million drivers out there. And, you know, they're sort of the biggest, the most demand. And you can usually make the most money with them. Most drivers make around 15 to $20 per hour before expenses. But I think one of the things that I love about them and that I think your audience might also love about them. I mean, it's some of the stuff that Justin alluded to, like a lot of the fringe benefits, a lot of the tangential benefits of driving for Uber and Lyft. There's a lot of jobs in the US where you can make 15 to 20 bucks an hour for expense. And it's actually going to be less than that after your expenses, obviously. But there are a lot of jobs that pay in that range. But I think the unique thing about Uber and Lyft is the flexibility. So if you can take advantage of that flexibility, if you're a teacher who can only work in the summer, for example, right? 
right? Like that's the time where you can work those jobs. Or if you're someone who, you know, I think rideshare, since you're 1099 and you're, you you have to file a schedule C on your taxes, it's actually great practice for running a real business. A lot of the things that I do running a multi-million dollar media business, you have to do as an Uber Lyft driver. You have to think about insurance. You have to think about liability. You have to think about not only your income, but also your expenses, right? And so you have, you have to do licensing. Like some of these cities require a business license, right? And so it's like great practice. And from day one, you're actually making money, right? Like you will never lose, almost never lose money. It's very, very hard to lose money. So that's what I love about Uber and Lyft. And I think the other big area that we tend to cover is food delivery. So you typically don't make as much with food delivery as you do with Uber and Lyft, but it's also a little bit of a different job, right? If you're more of an introvert, food delivery might be better, right? There's less customer interaction. The vehicle requirements are less stringent. You can actually, you know, use a moped, you can use a bicycle, you can walk in some cities, I think even. So that's an option there. And, you know, that includes companies like Postmates, DoorDash, Instacart. And then there's a number of smaller ones too. And then, so we cover a lot of that. We also have covered bird scooter charging. So charging scooters for Lime and bird, those jobs in the past year, I think that those opportunities are a lot less, but I think generally what we focus on are sort of the rideshare, the food delivery, and really anything in the logistics space, because I think transportation and logistics, it all comes down to getting an object or a group of objects from point A to point B. If you're doing Uber and Lyft, there's going to be some areas that are minimized, you know, and maximized versus food delivery. But at the end of the day, the goal of the job is very similar. And obviously you have like a great pulse on all these things, all these companies, all things coming down the line. So is there anything new and emerging that maybe listeners should look out for and start to look into to see if it's coming to their city? As far as big companies, I think all the big ones, you know, like I mentioned, the Uber, the Lyfts, the DoorDash, the Postmates, right? Those companies, I think are, I wouldn't say they're done expanding, but they've sort of made their expansions into a lot of the bigger markets. But I, what I will say is that I think going forward, like if you look at a lot of the macro trends in even food delivery, package delivery, a lot of these things, a lot of things are being delivered. (laughs) And it's not just the big companies, there are a number of smaller services. And so while I may not know the names of, you know, the five or 10 small services in every city across town, what one thing we have identified is that there are a number of kind of like what I call random delivery services or random transportation jobs or companies that are doing carpooling, shuttling and vans. And typically, you know, these companies don't have as big of a name, but they have to pay more. There's one here in LA that I work with called Pablito and they do commuter shuttles for employees, right? So a big companies and they pay their drivers $17 an hour they treat them like they're actually employees. So they also get benefits. So it's like, if you want to go that route, it's like, Hey, if on Uber and Lyft, you make 15 to 20 before expenses, you can actually make the same, or maybe even a little more with this job and you get benefits, but you probably have to be one of the top Uber and Lyft drivers. Right. And so that's a company that, you know, is going to be very hard to find out about, but there are a number of those opportunities, you know, in your city. So you could peruse Craigslist ads, you could talk to other Uber and Lyft drivers or other transportation type workers or logistics type workers in your area. A big thing here in California is actually weed delivery since it's legal in California. And again, that's one where you're actually, you sort of operate like Uber and Lyft, but you're paid a flat salary since you technically have to be an employee. So you get a salary, like you get minimum wage per hour, but you also get the federal mileage reimbursement rate. So 57 cents per mile. And then you also get tips. So it's like, you can actually like end up making pretty good money if you know what you're doing and kind of serving the right people and have the right attitude. 
So a lot of these, most of these actually involve having a vehicle. And I'm wondering if there is the ride share mobile, the one that gets Harry's stamp of approval, whether it's age, whether it's mileage, whether it's type. Is there any like perfect ride share mobile? I think if you're doing Uber and Lyft, especially the more you drive, gas is going to be your number one expense. And so, you know, we typically tell people if you can get a good deal on a two to three year old used Toyota Prius, something of that nature. I mean, there's kind of a reason why you, you know, if you've ever taken an Uber or Lyft in a major city, like 50% of the time it's Prius (laughs) because it is such a good rideshare vehicle. But the other thing that I would mention is just the fact that, you know, there are some drivers out there that, you know, do Uber and Lyft a little bit on the side to, you know, maybe help offset their car payment or to help save money for a new car, because that's one thing too you can take advantage of. I mean, I did an experiment here in LA that your listeners might be interested in. And I actually, Uber and Lyft have an option called destination mode. And so you can set a destination and only get trips headed in that direction. And so every time I went anywhere in LA for about a month, I set that mode and I got a trip about half the time. But during all of those, you know, whenever I had that destination mode on, I could deduct all of those miles on my taxes, right? Since I was working for Uber and Lyft. So it's sort of like a nice loophole where you know, I would only get a trip here and there and it would only take me a few minutes. I didn't really lose much time. You know, you sort of have to be a little flexible, right? If you have to be somewhere at 8 a.m., it won't work that well. But I basically I have an article on my site that maybe we can link to. And I did this whole experiment where I did that and I made this crazy 30 or 40 dollar hourly rate, you know, in increments. And I also got like a huge tax deduction, which uh, you can even offset against your W-2 income if you make below a certain threshold. So, you know, that's again, like these are like the type of tax tricks that like bigger businesses are using. And here I am as an Uber Lyft driver. You know, I don't think many people are, are doing that, those types of experiments. <laughs> but, you know, those are the, the types of uh, things that really interest me and that we're always trying to cover. And it, it makes for interesting reading, even though some people may most people may not follow up on it. So Uber and Lyft driving is definitely something that we see a lot of our listeners and even a lot of our guests who have experimented with, who've tested out because of the flexibility. But I'm just curious if there's any things that things you see people doing that you would warn against, not necessarily like companies working with, but I mean, individually, the way they're operating within those companies. So, you know, like I know insurance companies have come out and they've been a lot more strict about your car insurance and saying, hey, if you drive for Uber, like you have to let us know, you have to add this extra insurance, like things like that, that people may be trying to skimp on and go around the rules that they should really be careful about. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Justin. And I think that what I tell people is, you know, a lot of people get into Uber and Lyft driving or gig economy work looking to make a few hundred bucks a week, but they're running a business, right? And so they really have to think like a business owner. And what that means is that if you have, let's say, assets at stake, right, if you have a home, if you have you know, a lot of money in your checking account, whatever it is, right, there's certain liability that you're exposing yourself to. And so I would say you really, you know, running a business is complex. So if you want to do Uber and Lyft really simply and, you know, you don't have a lot to lose, (laughs) I would say that you can kind of just go for it and, you know, do a modicum of research and kind of start doing it. And if you get into trouble, like there's only so much trouble you can get into if you don't have a lot to lose, right? But if you've got a family and if you've got a house and all of these other things, then that's when you're really going to want to understand the liability, the rideshare insurance. Because as Justin, as you pointed out, right, you can become an Uber and Lyft driver with regular personal insurance, but there's a bit of a gap 
during this period one that they call where your app is on, but you don't have a passenger yet, where Uber and Lyft don't cover you and your personal insurance won't really cover you either. So it's rare that you get into an accident during that time. But if you do, you're sort of screwed. And you can kind of imagine that if you get into an accident, someone sues you and Uber probably, and you're named in that and you have some huge house and you're sort of like driving on the side just to try this out because you thought it might be fun because you listened to Harry on the podcast and you didn't kind of protect yourself, you could end up in a bad situation, right? But I think it's like a lot of things in life, right? Like as you become more successful, you really need to kind of be more careful. You know, like for example, in my business now, I have disability insurance, I have liability insurance for my business, I have life insurance, I have umbrella insurance, I have renter's insurance on all my properties, I have LLCs set up, and it's basically like, you know, obviously nothing is foolproof, but I've worked very hard to build up this mountain, and now it's all about protecting it until the point where it doesn't matter anymore. I know a lot of these rideshare services have what's like a surge feature where if there's higher demand, you'll get paid more money. Are there peak times that people, maybe they wouldn't expect that these would be peak times, but these are the times that people should be driving if they have a little chunk of time during their day. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's actually how I got started driving for Uber and Lyft. I sort of stumbled. The only times I really could drive were on evenings and weekends. And, uh, you know, Friday, Saturday nights tend to be the busiest. And that's when you see surge pricing. A lot of people might have experienced this on the passenger side kind of sucks because you're paying two, sometimes three times the cost of the ride. But it's great for drivers because they make the extra right. Uber will still take a cut. They, they still take a commission on that increased ride. But you make more for doing the same amount of work. So Friday, Saturday nights are great. And then also commuting to and from work. And that's sort of like the second busiest times for drivers. So Monday through Friday, going to work and then home from work in the afternoon is very busy. You know, you do have to contend with a lot more traffic during those times. And drivers usually make, you know, we usually tell drivers you make a lot more money when your wheels are moving. So if you're sitting in traffic, you don't make as much, but it might be balanced out by surge pricing. So those are two good times that make a lot of sense. And so, you know, kind of going back to that example, you could imagine, hey, if someone is commuting to or from work and they can kind of get there in between eight and nine, maybe they pick up a few passengers on the way, they make a little money, they deduct all those miles and, uh, you know, you can sort of start to see how it might be a, a win-win for a lot of cases. And you probably end up even reporting a loss on your taxes too for your Uber and Lyft driving job. So one thing I wanted to make sure I picked your brain on, and it's not as like tactical or a, a numerical kind of question as a lot of these have been, but when Uber and Lyft first started, one of the things that drew me to it as a consumer was kind of the spirit of it. Like it felt like you were getting in a car with somebody from your neighborhood. They were nice. You know, you would have like a lot of times you'd have like the snacks, the bottle of water, whatever it was. People were very talkative. And then over time, it seems like it has just slowly become another taxi service where you have people who you know, you have like the rude taxi driver persona, you have like this like wall between you and the person. It's weird if you set up front now or as used to that seemed like it was totally okay. I'm just curious what you think about the overall like spirit of these rideshare companies and if there's ever going to go back. Yeah, I think the because uh, that's sort of around when I started, you know, when I first started driving in 2014, that's how it was. And, you know, I think that the fact that these services were so new and hip and innovative kind of made it 
a lot more, you know, kind of like it felt more like it was your friend with a car, right? And people were more friendly. And I will say these days, you know, most passengers just get in and stare at their phone or they'll put their AirPods in and that's the real sign, like, don't talk to me. <laughs> they put their headphones on. So I think that some of that, uh, maybe even a lot of that has been lost over time. And unfortunately, I don't know that there's much we can do about it. I think it just has to do with the fact that, you know, when anything is new and sexy and fun, there's more of that kind of, you know, group or community feeling. And as things scale, I mean, Uber, I think at last is doing eight to 10 million rides a day around the globe. Like they're basically a behemoth now. Right. And it's become just more of a commodity product. Right. And so I think, you know, the the learnings that I've sort of seen from that is that a lot of times early on, you know, you can kind of like get that first mover advantage, not only on the company side, but on the driver's side, you might make more, you might have a better experience. Right. It was more fun. I think it was more fun to be a driver five, six years ago than it is today. Right. For a lot of the reasons you alluded to. So while, you know, it's sort of like the old adage, right? Any Anything that's great, you know, I think tends to attract a lot of people to, right? Like there's no secret beaches that nobody knows about because over time people start telling their friends and then people start coming and then it's no longer this great secret beach. It's like a crowded touristy spot, but it's a crowded touristy spot for a reason. It's because it's a great beach, right? And I think similarly with Uber and Lyft, that's kind of what we've seen over the years that it's such a great service and so cool. It's attracted a ton of drivers and it's attracted a ton of passengers and people have taken a ton of rides. And so a lot of that novelty has worn off. One of the last things I want to make sure I asked you about, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, because basically the whole premise of all these jobs is you're bringing one item or one thing or one group of things to another place. And so you have this section on your site called Thinking Beyond Rideshare, and you talk about these other things that you can do that have to do with driving. Could you just maybe touch on some of those? There were some of them that I had never heard of before that I didn't even know that those could become side hustles or full-time jobs. Yeah, so this is one section of the site that hopefully we can spend some time on right now because I've been working hard on this over the past year. And basically what the issue we identified was that because of the nature of these jobs, you know, mainly Uber and Lyft, but also other gig economy jobs, is they're very transitional. A lot of people don't want to do it forever, right? And that's, again, like that's the type of person I am. I'm not trying to make people drive for Uber and Lyft forever. It's like I'm just seeing what they're doing and then how we can best serve them. And so what we noticed is that that a lot of drivers, you know, they started driving for Uber and Lyft and then they quit. And that sucks for me because we spend a lot of time, you know, developing relationship. We reply to every single email that we get from our users. And then to have them quit driving for Uber and Lyft and unsubscribe is obviously not what we want. But we started thinking about, okay, how can we help them transition into those next jobs? And, you know, we had to first figure out, like, what are those jobs that they're doing? And kind of what we figured out is that there's two branches that people go. So it's sort of like from gig economy and Uber and Lyft. And this isn't, you know, this is sort of like estimation, I guess you would say. But a lot of people, maybe half people go into transportation jobs. So this would be more professional driving jobs, truck driving, taxi driving, something where there's sort of like the ability to actually have a career have that upward mobility, that company Pablito that I talked about earlier, where, you know, you can become an employee and they actually end up hiring some of their employees, you know, to actually work at the company, right? Stuff like that. So we started detailing a lot of those jobs. So on the site, we did a big series on truck driving. One of my contributors actually went and he just, I didn't make him do this. He wanted to go drive a truck for a year. So when he, after he was done, we did like a huge series on like what it was like to drive a big rig truck for a year. We had one of my guys test out taxi driving. And so we've tried a number of jobs in that transportation space, that kind of graduation, what I call to a professional job. And then the other area we identified are sort of these entrepreneurial 
1099 kind of, you know, freelance jobs, but ones where you can actually build a career. So it could be everything. And, you know, these might be some of the odd jobs you saw on the site, but we did a huge series on becoming a public notary. And that was one of the most popular series we've done so far, because it turns out you actually build your business a lot like an Uber or Lyft driver. There's actually an app out there. I don't know if it's in every state, but I know this guy in California we interviewed, he used an app in California and it was like, it sent you a notification when there was a job available. And then you would go out and do that job. And especially in a housing market where, you know, you need public notaries and you can imagine if you're closing on like a five million dollar house in california you're pretty much willing to pay anything to get a public notary over to your house and so it kind of goes back to again like one of the reasons why we liked highlighting that job and other kind of random odd jobs are because like there's certain industries during certain times where demand is much higher and if you can get in on those jobs before you know like this public notary is making like over a hundred thousand dollars a year in california and it's you know i'm sure over time as more people discover that that job is great that pay may come down but it's like how do you always stay one step ahead of the curve or how do you make sure that you were the first like this guy that we interviewed uh, his name is nathan dalton and he actually is now building his business a public notary. So he has too many jobs that he can handle. And so he's already identifying the fact that like, hey, there's all these people that want to be public notaries, probably because I bragged about how much money I made. But I can stay one step ahead of the curve because now I'm hiring them and sending them out on some of these jobs. Right. And sort of, you know, like scaling up with that model. So definitely I'm, I'm really excited about the life after rideshare section. And I actually took a little inspiration from the courses that you guys are doing. And one of the ideas that we have for a future course is to create create one where we kind of interview someone, you know, we want to highlight like 20 life after rideshare jobs and do one video interviewing someone who's actually doing it. And then one kind of explainer video, what the job is like, what it might entail, how much you might make and sort of just, you know, give people a little taste of all these other options. So definitely something I'm excited for in the future. So since you brought it up, I've got to ask, because my whole life I've seen, you know, the 18 wheelers come by and they'll have the posting on the side of the truck and it makes it sound like you can make eighty, ninety thousand dollars just driving an eighteen wheeler around. And it always kind of felt like that probably that seems too good to be true and not to be like stereotypical, but you know, when you think of a truck driver, you don't think of somebody who's making six figures or close to it. So is that true? Like can you really make good money driving an eighteen wheeler after you've worked with somebody and done this experiment? Yeah. So I think uh, Jonathan on my team is the expert, but we did do, you know, I interviewed him a bunch of times about this and we created a bunch of content about it. And if memory serves, you know, basically the gist of it is you're not going to go out and get rich from day one, but there is a lot of opportunity for upward mobility. Like if you end up driving a truck for Walmart, which surprisingly, you don't think of Walmart as having the best job opportunities, but when it comes to truck drivers, they're like one of the top companies out there. <laughs> and especially if you get a regional job where you sort of stay locally as opposed to, you know, driving a truck around the country. Obviously, you can kind of imagine one is much more desirable than others. And some of these drivers are making very good money. I wouldn't say that, you know, it's like the cure all to a lot of problems. I would even say in the early days of Uber and Lyft, we saw a lot of truck drivers quitting truck driving or reducing their hours there and coming over to Uber and Lyft. And as Uber and Lyft over time have sort of, you know, paid less, you know, demand for drivers has, you know, there's been more, sorry, more supply for drivers over time. I would even say, you know, now some drivers are now going back to truck driving, right? Or some drivers are thinking about like, hey, this seems like a better career opportunity or I can actually build my business. So, you know, there's sort of some back and forth. And again, it kind of like depends on your situation, right? And kind of, you know, you can imagine your family situation 
situation? Are you paying rent or not rent? If you're living with your parents and don't have a girlfriend or a job, you can kind of imagine like being a truck driver might not be such a bad gig. You go hit the road for a month and come home, stay with your parents. You have no expenses, you know, no real expenses, no rent, and you can kind of save up money in the meantime. But there are a couple different paths you can take as a truck driver. You do kind of have to go through and get your license, as you might imagine, and so you can kind of go through a school where they basically pay you nothing, or you can kind of go through another company and some will hire you after. But that could be a whole nother podcast itself, maybe. Cool. But we've got a whole bunch of instructions and content on that if people are interested in learning the details. Well, I have definitely learned a ton today, Harry. There are so many opportunities out there in the rideshare space. Like there's all these food delivery. There's just the regular Uber Lyft. There's truck driving and being a notary. All the super cool stuff that you compile on your site, the rideshare guy. I know you have the site. You have a podcast as well. Do you have, I think you have two podcasts and you have a YouTube channel. If people want to learn more about your content, they want to learn more about Harry, learn more about rideshare stuff in general, where are the best places they can do that? Yeah. So I would say the best place you just type the rideshare guy into any box on the internet and I should pop up. And if I don't, let me know so that I can make that happen. <laughs> but uh, you can head over to the site. The rideshareguy.com is great. We do have podcast. We have two podcasts, one called the rideshare guy. I tend to cover more of the industry mobility type issues. And we have another one that's a little more nitty gritty for drivers by one of my senior contributors called the rideshare dojo. And we do have a new course coming out. Well, it's actually an old course that's five or six years old that uh, was getting a little embarrassed because it was so old, but we decided to update it, re-release it, and I'm really excited about that. So that should be live very soon, MaximumRideSharingProfits.com. And uh, yeah. And Harry, I know that financial independence isn't like a cornerstone of your story and what we've been talking about today. But one thing we always like to ask our guests that come on is what is like your number one tangible tip for someone who is on that path to financial independence? Yeah. So I think my number one tip for someone who's on the path to financial independence is I think it's always easier to make more money than it is to spend less. And I think that a lot of people focus on the expense side of things. And to me, I think as long as you keep your expenses reasonable, as long as you're not trying to fly private jets around the world, you can actually do a lot of damage with kind of moderate amount of income. And I think that you'd be surprised if you can really become an expert in a certain topic or if you can if you're really open to money making opportunities, I think that it's not as hard as you think to increase your income. I always tell people that when someone wants to give you money, saying yes is a skill. Not everyone is good at taking money from other people. And I think that's just always been one area that I've always focused on my business. And I think that, you know, when you have a good relationship with someone or that you see that you can provide some value, finding a way to work with them, I think that that's a skill that takes a lot of practice and, you know, it doesn't always work out and it's going to take a lot of trial and error. But as you refine that skill, you'd be really surprised at just how easy it is to make money when you have some level of expertise or you sort of know what you're doing or know what you're talking about. Love that, man. Build up those skills, make some money. So the last question of the podcast is the most important question. It's the wild card question. I don't prepare. Justin's not prepared. So Harry, you're definitely not prepared for this, but are you ready? <laughs> I was born ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So this is kind of a t-ball question. I know a lot of listeners could probably expect this one coming. You've done a lot of ride sharing in your life. You've definitely done a lot of testing. And I know you still sometimes will go out, do an Uber or Lyft ride just to make sure you're still acclimated with the current climate. What's the craziest thing? It could be a conversation. It could be an action or just anything that's taken place in your car. And you're like, whoa, I really wish that I had this on camera. <laughs> Well, uh, one of my tips to new drivers is actually to have a dash cam. So a lot of the crazy stuff that's happened in my car, 
I have recorded, although I don't think I've ever published it or I'm not supposed to publish it at least. And I think the craziest thing, uh, you know, maybe maybe right now is a good time to sort of share more of an uplifting story. I think one thing that uh, I had very early on in my driving career was actually a story. I was picking up a guy in L.A. who was a very well, first of all, the ping came in and I immediately got a phone call from the passenger, which is never a good sign. Right. Because, you know, you don't really need to call each other on the app. That's usually like kind of a telltale sign. The person doesn't know what they're doing or there's some issue. And it was it sounded like an older gentleman. And he explained to me where he was. And I said, yeah, I see it on the app. OK, I'll be right there. And I ended up picking him up. I think he was 84, 85. And his nephew had installed the app on his phone. And so he didn't even really know what Uber was. He just kind of knew how to call a ride. And clearly, he didn't even know how to place the pin. That's why he called me. But he didn't know how to call me. And I asked him what he was doing. And he was in town for the summer working at some museum as sort of like a volunteer. And I asked him what he was doing. He lived right next to the museum. And he was like going to see a childhood friend. And I was thinking to myself how cool it is. Like this guy isn't even, I think he was from Chicago and he was living in LA for the summer, didn't have a car, didn't seem like the type who, you know, maybe should be driving. And here he was taking Uber to go meet this long lost friend. And it was like, I could kind of just picture this scene of like these two older gentlemen at a cafe in West Hollywood, you know, like having coffee, reminiscing about things that happened 50 years ago. And it just seemed like, you know, without Uber, I don't think that trip would have been possible because, you know, you definitely can't take public transportation in LA to, you know, for that type of trip. And so I think that for, you know, stuff like that, again, right, like not every trip is like that. And a lot of times people, you know, maybe puking in your backseat, but it's the trips like that, that sometimes kind of make it worth it. And even though kind of gets back to a lot of what I care about in life. I'm always looking for business opportunities. I'm always looking for things that are unique and interesting. And then I'm always looking to help people. And, you know, every project, sometimes I make more money and, you know, sometimes I help more people on different projects. But those are the three things that I always care about. And, you know, in everything that I do in life, I'm always looking to at least have some some part of my feet in uh, each one of those uh, circles. Well, so glad I asked because it's definitely not all about the money. Love it. Impact. <laughs> Well, Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking some time out of your obviously busy schedule to spend some time with us and give some insights to our listeners. I really appreciate how technical you are with all this, how much detail you go into. It's not just a lot of fluff, like you're getting in there, you're interviewing cool stories, you're doing a lot of analysis. So I appreciate all the education that you're putting out into the world and we had a great time having you on the show. Yeah, appreciate what you guys are doing and thanks for having me on. Definitely enjoyed this episode, Justin. I think it was really timely because even though services like Uber and Lyft are definitely down in this time where we're quarantined and everyone's at home, a lot of these delivery services like the Instacarts and the DoorDashes of the world, those are starting to really blow up. And you can start to make a real side hustle income if you take advantage of these opportunities. What do you think about the episode, man? Yeah, I agree. It's a very timely episode. I mean, it's another one of those key topic areas to where you can add some flexibility into your income stream. So you're not just dependent on one area. A lot of the discussions were in this episode was it may not be your sole source of income. It may not even be a huge percentage of it, but it just gives you another little avenue to where you can kind of diversify your income streams. Another thing that I really liked about this episode and it totally resonated with me is using one of these rideshare side hustles. Yes, you're trading your time for money, but what Harry did when he started out yeah, he was driving for Lyft and he was making a decent amount of income, but he was leveraging that money to go and build his business on the side. So he's like, yeah, I didn't want to be a full-time Uber or Lyft driver or whatever, a delivery service person. But he's like, I could picture myself building this rideshare guy brand and building a blog. And 
you don't necessarily have to go out and build a brand or a blog or anything like that. But if you have some dream, some business, some passion that you're chasing, using a side hustle like a delivery service or like a rideshare service can be a great way to kind of get that extra side hustle footing. So when you are ready to transition out of that W-2 job, if that's what you choose, you'll be in a way better position. Another awesome thing that I loved about this episode, Cody, was the way that he runs Rideshare Guy, you know, he's always going in there and trying to get this like really in-depth information. And so he was able to give us some of that. And, you know, some of the also big, just like, here's some top things you should look out for. And so some of those things I thought were interesting was it's kind of obvious, like maybe you want to drive when people are going to and from the bars like those weekend nights. But I honestly didn't even think about, hey, that workday rush, like the Monday through Friday mornings and afternoons. Also, he was giving us some of the ins and outs on exactly what is that extra insurance you hear about where you need to let your car insurance provider know that you're using your car for more than just your own personal use, that you're using it to make money. He also got into some of the things about, you know, being able to count that mileage towards your taxes. So you it may actually end up looking like a loss on your taxes, which can help overall. And then even just down into the like, hey, what kind of car should I buy if I'm going to do this? So that's another thing I really liked about the episode and not just the episode, but his style in general is that it's very packed full of information like that, kind of really detailed. You can tell that he had that engineering background and I appreciate that. I also like how he's been kind of diversifying and branching out from just the typical name brand rideshare delivery service stuff. He was talking about truck driving and how you can make quite a pretty penny doing truck driving, being a mobile notary. There's all these other side hustles that he talked about that I didn't quite frankly know existed. And it seems like there's a huge market out there. And I think it's on the portion of a site called Life After Rideshare. And something else that's really cool that Harry's done is he's compiled all this information. And as you can tell, this whole episode, Harry was a wealth of knowledge. He knew all this stuff about times and insurance and all these things that Justin and I probably wouldn't know about unless we're really in the weeds. But he bundled this all up into a course with his team. I think right now it's like 79 bucks. But if you're super serious about this and you want to get into any of these side hustles, I think that's a good investment because you can just kind of cut through all the noise and you can start to learn the tricks of the trade a lot faster. And even if you're able to make, you know, five more dollars per hour because you know when to travel, you know what type of car to get, any of those tricks of the trade that you might not know without having an expert tell you, you'll easily recoup that money. So we'll definitely have a link in the show notes to that. You can also go to the fiveshow.com slash MRP. That's MRP for maximum rideshare profits. And so again, if you're someone who's super serious about this, if you're just going to go try Uber Eats one time and you're not really that serious about it, probably not a good investment. But if you are someone who wants to just cut right through, get ahead of the curve, this is probably an awesome investment. And now it's time for the call to action. So the call to action this week is just giving it a shot. So go out there and look at one of these logistics-based businesses, whether it's Uber, Lyft, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Postmates, DoorDash, you name it. There's so many things out there and not all of them even involve using a car. So some of them you can deliver things with a bicycle or on foot. So this week, just go out there, try one of these that's available in your area and that matches like the setup that you have. Easy and actionable. Call to action, Justin. Love it. You can literally get set up on one of these apps in five minutes and go make your first delivery or trip or whatever it is. And if you like this episode, you want to get more information, you want to check out that Maximum Ride Sharing Profits course, you can do all of that at our show notes at thefyshow.com slash Harry. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.